Welcome to the AI Decision Guy podcast, the show where we explore the intriguing balance between artificial intelligence and human decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Carlos Kemeny, and in each episode, we dive deep into the world of AI and its impact on various industries. Joe Reese is the best-selling co-author of Fundamentals of Data Engineering, published by O'Reilly. He is a recovering data scientist and the co-founder and CEO of Ternary Data. He's a business-minded data nerd who's worked in the data industry for over 20 years. He hosts the popular data show, The Monday Morning Data Chat, interviewing the top professionals in the data field, as well as recently launched The Joe Reese Show, Nerdy Rants. Joe runs several meetups, including the Utah Data Engineering Meetup and SLC Python, as well as teaches at the University of Utah. He's a good friend, and I'm grateful for him joining the show today. Okay, well, it's wonderful to have a good friend of mine, Joe. Joe, thanks for joining the show. What's happening? How you doing? Good. I think that your fame across the world continues to grow. You're going to be going on tour here soon? Yeah, I start tour next week. I'm going to Atlanta uh, for the uh, Joe Reese and DBT Roadshow, then... The following week off to Australia, doing a couple um, talks in Utah, surprisingly enough. So I think next Tuesday at the uh, uh, Data Engineering, or not Data Engineering Leadership, something or other. Yeah, then you down the meetup that helped start um, speaking at that one. So then it's the last time I'll be in Utah speaking for probably quite a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'll like, be in front of a home crowd for a bit. But, yeah. speak, to, speak to that a little bit. I mean, obviously the book has gained quite a bit of traction over what now it's been has it been two years now it's been uh just a bit over a year a yep. year and so i mean clearly on my linkedin feed i continue to see people raving about the book holding the book up um All and <laughs> this shows the impact i mean you guys have really written something that has won some hearts and some minds and so how's that been it's a trip to see it you know um I mean, it, it's still, uh, I still think it's pretty surreal, you know, especially when people write blog posts about it and, you know, take the time to review it. Cause that's a lot of time to write a post really about a book. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. So to see people, you know, either posting about it with pictures, I mean, that happens on a, I would say a multiple times a day now, which it's really interesting to see. So, um, you know, I'm definitely grateful to everybody out there, you know, so it's, it's one of the things that I think on one hand, you sort of get used to it. On the other hand, you shouldn't get used to it because then you start taking it for granted. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but it, it's, it's cool seeing it, you know, and I, I think traveling the world and, um, you know, I mean, people who have read the book and uh, getting to know, you know, what they've, uh, you know, what they like about it and sometimes what they don't, uh, you know, and, uh, being mobbed and taking selfies and signing autographs is definitely, uh, it's, it's, it's a change from what I used to do. So, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So we'll talk about why you think this was such a hit. I mean, obviously one of the challenges of, of data has been creating some kind of standardization around structure that organizations yeah. can adopt. And so for me, when I look at that book, I think one of the great values of this is actually getting practice combined with just experience, you know, all of this in one where it starts to put some of these thoughts and ideas that a lot of people have been thinking about into a book and into a structure and, I think there's a convergence that people have wanted for quite some time that you guys achieved. Is that yeah. part of this? Um, 
I think that it, it's because data engineering is, uh, I think a lot of it, cause it's seen as a necessity, right. And people want to learn it. Um, and it's really hard, I think, to get the right materials. I mean, now it's getting a lot easier. You know, I got a lot of friends making courses and writing books on that. You know, the most popular book in O'Reilly still is uh, Martin Kleppen's Designing Data Intensive Applications, right? So that book's been out since I think 2017 or maybe even earlier, but you know, that's a book on distributed systems. It was actually geared towards software engineers. It wasn't geared towards quote data engineers because that was just a, uh, I think a budding title at that point. But that, you know, I think, so it speaks to the testament that um, there's a big interest in data engineering if that's the most popular book, right? Um, you know, and I think by a long shot, it's the most popular book in O'Reilly. I think ours will, um, you know, by, by most estimations, uh, eventually catch up with it. But um, I think ours is one of the top O'Reilly books as well. Um, so it, it's, but I think it, it more speaks to where the industry is, right? So if designing data, data intensive applications is, is a big hit, and that's a distributed systems book, which I think is a great book. I've read it several times, but it's also very um, deep, right? It, it doesn't, uh, it throws you into the deep end quite quickly. So I think what we wanted to do with the fundamentals of data engineering was really take a step back and, and write the prequel to um, designing data intensive applications with a, probably a bit more of a, you know, somewhat of a modern take, but I also, you know, we take the approach that Martin did with his book where he focused on the immutables as well, because that's, um, I think provides the necessary framework for a, uh, people interested in data engineering to really wrap their heads around data engineering. Cause I think there's a lot of really, um, I wouldn't say bad materials, but I think maybe, um, materials that won't set you up for success as much where, you know, that's say data engineering on like AWS or data engineering with Python, for example, those books I think are good, but they don't think they give you the broader context of what data engineering is as a discipline. And so that was, that was the thing I think that was most lacking in the field, which is, you know, contextualizing and defining, uh, the field you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, but I think we managed to at least um, give our perspective on what we think data engineering is and where it fits into the universe. And I think it just resonated with enough people around the world that it, it blew up. Uh, it was interesting too on Amazon. It was, um, you know, it was number one new release uh, like several months before it came out. So we already knew that it was going to be a hit. So. Well, congratulations. So interesting. I mean, it, obviously it's, it's a big deal. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, part of the conversation uh, that you've been having, because you have a, a show that you've been doing now for, you did kind of the morning chat, which I love. There's kind of just that, you know, raw conversation for quite some time. And now you have the, uh, a show that you've launched that you're talking to some incredible people um, yeah. and bringing folks in. Maybe talk a little bit about the things that you're most passionate about right now. What are the things that, I mean, you've been talking about data modeling for some time. Um, yeah. You've talked about yeah, quality, <laughs> but what, like what's, what's on top of mind now for you? I think the same things, data modeling still uh, top of mind. I would say finding different, you know, so that's what's driving that discussion really is. I think that um, um, just total anarchy uh, in the way we think about data right now. Right. And I'm not just talking about data proper, like data engineers or analysts. I think that that's, the stuff they have to deal with is more of a consequence of upstream, um, you know, bad behaviors or maybe a lack of appreciation of data modeling. And so I, um, something I've just been thinking a lot about, like, how do we get back to basics with data, right? Because especially with the, the surge of AI, for example, um, I think we're at a, a point where there's going to be a lot of attention focused on AI and data. But if the underlying data sources are kind of crappy, you know, or substandard, then what do you think is going to happen? Uh, if you throw a large language model on top of a, you know, a database that's probably not great. Um, 
I think you're going to get not great results. And so, but I, you know, I'm really optimistic on AI, for example, right? And I, I really think that this is the moment that the industry can really shine. Um, but AI could allow us to do a lot of dumb things more quickly or, or more incorrectly. And, and so that's one thing I've been thinking about. But I was thinking about, you know, data modeling before, um, you know, I think the popularity of ChatGPT when that came out last November. Uh, I've been toying around with this idea because I felt like that was a thing that was missing in my book. Uh, Fundamentals of Data Engineering was really the discussion on data modeling was felt we did we did it justice to expose people to it, but I really feel like as I saw uh, data teams and software teams uh, working with um, you know just data, whether it's in a transactional database or whatever, um, it was just sort of a uh, you know manhandled for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, you just throw the data in and do what you can, but there's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, I saw this a lot in my consulting gigs. Is the, the data is just kind of um, it could be better, right? And so as, as I started digging into the root causes of this, I figured that data modeling was a, a chief among the root causes of, of a lot of the problems that we see, um, you know, which is uh, you know, poor data quality and, um, you know, the reason you need observability, for example, is, you know, schema changes. Well, why did the schema change? Uh, well, was the schema change in a way that it actually makes any sense at all, too? That's the other question. Right? So just things like this. Like that's, that's what's been on my mind. I think the other things that are on my mind right now is... Um, uh, you know, just teaching, right? Better ways of teaching. So I'm working on some courses on data engineering right now. Uh, uh, you'll find out more about those pretty soon. One's on a, you know, probably the, the world's largest MOOC to give you an example. So, um, so just, you know, projects like that. And then also, you know, what, what's in store for next year? Um, I don't know. I have a lot of things in my mind. Uh, part of me is wondering if I want to take a step back from the data world in general and just kind of focus on other stuff, which I've, I've been thinking about, you know, I've been thinking about the impact of you know, social media on kids and AI on kids. And I really feel like that might be the the next, um, you know, phase that I go into, but I'm not sure yet. Maybe I'll stay uh, doing what I'm doing. If I, this, this industry finds a way of keeping you um, sucked in. So well, let's, let's dig into a few of the things that you just talked about, because you've talked about a yeah, number of themes. Of <laughs> so clearly I want to hit on the AI and <clears throat> social media. I want to hit on all of these things because I also share a passion there on the decision-making side. Um, but yeah. let's talk first. I want to talk, let's rewind a little bit to the data quality because I've seen the same things. I think that in consulting, you know, fortune 250 startups alike, I found the same thing to be true, which is a lot of people don't have a handle on their data quality. A lot of this is that you put people on it. You say, Hey, get it done. And then there's some data set data flow. There's a pipeline somewhere. And then there's a data set. And now you start going crazy on dashboards. And yep. this is the point at which <laughs> executives feel like you have a handle on things. There's not a lot of observability towards data quality. Why is this continuing to be a problem? And two, when is it going to shift? I'm already starting starting to see the waves of, of change. Part of this is driven by open AI and hallucinations. I love this conversation. I love the media posts right now around hallucinations because it points finally to something that people can tangibly feel about when something's yeah. wrong. They can see that an input is now leading to something that's unexpected where they expected something to be perfect. And this is actually helping, I think, the data quality story be told quite a bit before our eyes. There is clearly a message that we've told for decades now, data with quality and quality out, your garbage, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. But I think this is the first moment that people are feeling that, wait, this is pretty true. And I think it was recognized before. 
in that yeah. a CEO doesn't trust the dashboard or whatever is shown on some data story and leans over to a CFO or whoever he trusts or she trusts in that room. And that's when they just basically go around anything that's shown on a dashboard. And this happens yep. quite often. All and a lot of this is the irreversibility of trust when something's presented and it's incorrect or just the misunderstanding that data changes, models change. And so you have to be very deliberate about how not only that you structure and architect, architect all of these things, but also how you present. And here's the other piece. I think data science and data in general were too honest, unfortunately. And this is, look, integrity is above all else, right? But yeah. when we, and I've done this, I've been in this position where you learn something new, you add something and you say, hey, some of the results have changed. And I want to make sure you know that. This undermines, I think, the biggest piece of what data is meant to do. It's to it's meant to reduce uncertainty. If mm -hmm. data is there to action on and to create decisions, right, uh, all of that, then really what we're driving at is that it should reduce uncertainty more than what the uncertainty level was before. And when we start in, in, uh, incrementally introducing uncertainty, then it almost feels like there's a net zero or an increasing uncertainty to the decision maker. Why don't you comment on some of these things? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, trust has always been a big thing, right? I mean, I, uh, you know, it's always bring up a, you know, Bill Inman, uh, when, you know, when I asked him as true North one time, you know, um, he said it was about, uh, you know, making sure data is believable, you know, and adds value. I still think that's true, but you know, he, he had this realization decades ago, but that's what always been as true North, right? So data needs to be believable and, and add value, but believable is an interesting thing because it's also, um, I brought this up at a talk I did in Canada um, a couple months ago. And it, it was funny because somebody's like, well, believable data, like that could also mean it's wrong. I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's sort of the point, isn't it? Right. How do you know it's right? Either. Right. But I think it, it, if it helps facilitate a, a, a decision that um, is value add, I think that's, that's maybe the, the better impact. Right. Because we can we can hair split all day about right or wrong. I mean, I, we can hair split all day about rational and irrational numbers, for example, you know, which one is correct. I don't know how, how far do you want to round out? Um, you know, which one is more right? Uh, what's the right version of pi, for example, right? I don't know. Depends on what, what kind of answer do you want? Well, you know, what kind of decision do you plan to make or what kind of action is going to, you know, you want to result from that. And so I think that's maybe a better way of thinking about the uncertainty aspect is, and so the, the brutal honesty you point out is interesting. Uh, I think there's definitely some aspect of that. What I wish would be trained in data science and, and uh, um, just, I, I think is like stakeholder management and, uh, you know, working with the business a bit, bit more closely and um, a bit more tightly. That's one thing I'm, I'm you know, from my course I'm building, actually, the, the first part of it is uh, it's actually requirements gathering. As a data engineer, for example, and guess what you're doing all the time? You're not sitting there building spark pipelines. Typically, you're, you're actually talking to stakeholders and understanding what they want and diving into the questions behind the questions and the, um, you know, the reasons behind the reasons and so forth. And I think that's, that's something where I think if we, get, if we get better aligned with stakeholders, I think that the, the amount of uncertainty that we have in the process of creating data sets, for example, I think that, that's largely reduced. I think the, the big fundamental problem we have is um, you know, there's kind of data over here 
data meeting the teams and there's a business over here. And I really think that that wall <coughs> needs to be, um, you know, probably broken down a bit. I had an article was back in, was it April or I think it was April. I was walking around Geneva. Um, just did a quick uh, video of me just talking about the business doesn't care about data, right? Quote data. Um, so you need to talk about things in terms of the, um, you know, the vocabulary that the business uh, understands, not just talk about uh, things that you understand because they don't, really don't care. If I came to you and started talking about, um, um, I don't know, businessy things that you didn't care about, inventory turns and stuff, right? Or something like that. I don't know. Pick your example. Yeah, I had no knowledge of what this was. You just look at me like I'm crazy, right? But this is what data people do all the time. And I think this adds to the uncertainty aspect that you're talking about because um, that's kind of why executives at the end of the day, they just sort of uh, circumvent the data team in, in general and just sort of, you know, kind of doing their own thing. I was actually just talking to somebody about this uh, um, about an hour ago, so, uh, a, a big person in the data field, I won't name names, but we're just kind of talking about how it, it's, it's interesting too. You know, we've built these massive systems, like, you know, the modern data stacks, I think does have some, some value in, in the right context, you know, but it's, it's interesting now that the decision-making that we used to do back in the day, 20 years ago, just using spreadsheets and just discussions. Now we have to have a data warehouse for that. And, you know, a BI tool. And I, and I, I'm fir I firmly believe that we don't need uh, most, most companies don't actually need any of that stuff. It's like, you need to have good conversations. And, and I think uh, just um, good analytical chops, or you can use spreadsheets for a lot of that stuff, to be frank. I don't think you need a uh, stuff fancy, you know, it's probably gonna piss off all my friends that work at the, uh, these <laughs> companies, but um you know, but that, that's, that's, that's my take on it. I just, I think that, uh, um, you know, keeping, keeping things low fidelity is actually, I think a better thing. Cause it, it reduces the, the, uh, time to decisions in most cases, right. Um, you can get fancy later, but I think that the main thing is you want to have the muscle memory and the, um, the routine for, for making decisions. And if you can get that, then everything else falls into place. If you don't have that, I mean, no amount of fancy technology in the world is going to help you. So. See, this so anyway, goes to that's my. A, that's, a, that's a weird way to answer your question, or, or, not, or I guess not answer your question, but there, there you it's go. It's answered. I think that you've answered <laughs> it. I mean, Sorry. obviously, I think a lot of the tools that exist and all of this data in the sprawl that's existed has created noise. And I think yeah. that just taking what you said, it's a lot of noise. There's a lot of periphery. And if mm -hmm. decisions, I hate the phrase data dis, uh, driven decision making. Yeah. The, I, just, I don't, I, I feel like this is a very consulting type phrase that we should do away with in the lexicon of data because why does it bug you it bugs me because we process billions of information data points every single you know minute you know mm -hmm. and so we're clearly data driven so there's an oxymoron-esque feel to this where yeah. there's a bit of uh, arrogance that mm -hmm. we as maybe data people take uh, that the data that you should be processing is my data, not everything else around you. And as a decision scientist, the reason why this bugs me is let's look at how people make decisions instead of the, the unnatural, which is I'm going to give you data. Now break the world apart and just look at the stuff I give you and make a decision off of that or else yeah. I'm going to be upset. Whereas a decision scientist would look at this and say, how does somebody make decisions? And now let's mm -hmm. back into what portion, if you're being a true data scientist, you're figuring out what drives the decision, 98% of the decisions you made Joe today, or 99.9 .9 have nothing to do with the dashboard. And it goes to your point, like most of your decisions are based on history. It's gonna be DNA, there's gonna be, right? There's gonna be different factors, conversations. 
But we, for whatever reason, think that the driver of decisions often as a dashboard is kind of a misguided approach. And I think it's a bit arrogant and it really hurts us. I think so. Um, And I mean, it's a classic hammer and nail situation, right? And so data-driven decision-making is definitely, I I do agree. I think it's, because everyone's like, oh, show me the data. And I'm like, well, sometimes you have to be able to operate in a low information environment. That's most business, actually. Most business, it's like you can, you can uh, drive it with a rear view mirror and try and predict forward. I've done enough forecasting in my life. I know how this works. Um, you know, it works until it doesn't, right? And it works until you have some exogenous effect or endogenous effect that it causes you to, um, all your assumptions to go out the window. I remember right when I, you know, one time I got hired at an e-commerce company and um, it was August of 2008 as a forecaster. I was there to, you know, forecast and help uh, implement a new forecasting system there. And then uh, I'm sure you remember what happened um, September. 2008, the entire uh, floor of the economy fell out. So all your forecasting just went out the window. So all you could do, I mean, so, so if you're, if you're trying to uh, do classic time series forecasting, you're, you're dead in the water, right? Seasonal components still might work to some extent. Like you're not going to buy winter jackets in the summer and so forth. But, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the trends that changes the magnitude, uh, that certainly changes. Um, so, so at that point, you do have to operate in a low information environment, right? You're, you're having to, re- I think, try and look for more forward-looking indicators of customer behavior. So one thing I did is I was looking at web traffic, which back then people weren't looking at. You know, this is kind of the mid-late uh, 2000s, you know, and that's the classic time series forecasting is still the vogue. But I'm like, what's customer behavior telling us at this point, you know? Um, you know, and also just kind of looking around and just um, anecdotally just seeing, okay, so gosh, people don't seem to have any money anymore. This is a weird thing. I guess they won't be buying uh, things that are probably considered a, um, you know, it's not, it's not a necessity, right? So, I mean, you remember that time. That was gnarly. I mean, that was a scary, scary time. I, it's hard for the audience to understand. I mean, it's kind of like what happened during, uh, uh, the, you know, in March and COVID, but um, I would say the consequences were actually much more real. Uh, you were looking at you know, potentially a very, very looming Great Depression if things hadn't changed, um, you know, and thankfully it did. But, uh, um, you know, so so again, it's you can try and be as data-driven as you want given the, the tools at your disposal, but I think you do need to understand the limitations of those tools and when it's time to change approaches too. And, and that sometimes means you're operating off your gut, God forbid. Um, you know, I mean, when you're, when you're driving your car, for example, I mean, a lot of that's gut-driven decision-making. I mean, Absolutely. This is very complex. There's a lot of consequences forward. around what you do and the decisions you make there, right? It's, yeah, it's a, <laughs> I think that when you talk about the stakeholder and the power, I think, of a data expert that is talking about the scope, this also has a lot of consequence on the quality of the output and how you determine the decision. I think that you brought up that post. I remember that post when you were walking around Switzerland. I remember that because... Yeah. It was, it was it Geneva. So I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I, uh, Geneva. Yep. yeah. So I was, I was sitting there and I was thinking, yeah, I mean, like clearly this is, you know, very valuable because at the end of the day, if somebody thinks that they want something and you go through that, there needs to be a framework by which you guide people to yeah. an output that is going to influence their decision instead of going through a lot of work. And this happened yesterday. I was talking mm-hmm. to somebody and, and, uh, we were talking about a problem that they're trying to solve and it started here 
And we ended up, well, what's the problem really that you're trying to solve? Mm. And digging into data availability, data quality, talking about the actions that are going to be affected. And this framework is a framework that I often use. And we ended up saying, well, isn't this really the problem that you're trying to solve? Mm. And it completely changes the solution that you're approaching. And because of that, you're getting rid of a lot of periphery. And so when you talk about better scoping, better business requirement documentation, this is a fundamental piece of data quality, right? Oh, yeah. That's really interesting. I'm going to walk you through that process of how did you arrive at, um, I, I guess, the answer that, that seemed probably far off in the distance, right? Or, or it was seemingly uh, not the topic of discussion when you started uh, your discussion. A lot of this was driven around these factors, right? So it's almost like a formula. I think that when, yeah. you, when you're talking about this, there's an input-output equation. And a lot of it is driven around prioritization, actually. This is my opinion. I'd love to hear your yeah. thoughts about these inputs. But if, for example, you have low data availability and there's a lot of collection, but the data quality is unknown, this is probably not something you're going to be prioritizing. Whereas if you have high data availability and high resolution quality or high integrity, but maybe there's some gaps in that integrity, you need to establish whether that's critical integrity to solve or not. And I think what we end up doing is a lot of people will just say, oh, I need to get data very high resolution or they don't even think about it. Data availability is what, whatever data I have. We're going to kind of force fit the situation. No, there's some inputs here. And then I think that a lot of the business requirements are driven around action and around the effect that you want. Is Are you automating something or are you creating a better decision? And that actually puts you in different frameworks as well. I, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you agree, disagree with those inputs? Oh, I certainly agree. I, I think it's, there's the answer you, you, you think you're going to get, and there's the answer that you get, right? These are sometimes not the same things. I've always been a big fan of like five whys, for example, to really dig into, um, you know, like data availability and quality, for example, like why, I don't know, why is a data available, but of low quality or vice versa, right? And to keep digging into that. Um, and oftentimes you'll arrive at different conclusions. Maybe you hit it right on the head, but I think, you know, but it helps, I think, challenge assumptions um, in a slightly annoying way, but uh, I think a very good way. So um, root cause analysis is always something that I, I think people should try and practice. Right. Um, but I guess, you know, you have to, you have to, I think, balance that against what's the agenda of the person asking the question. Sometimes they don't want to know the root cause. They just want an answer. Sometimes yeah. They, yeah. yeah so, well, yeah, you want an answer, but you want the answer that you want, <laughs> yeah. not the answer that you might get, right? Because I mean, again, it depends on what your agenda is. If they get the uh, the answer, you, you know, if the if the correct answer is one you that doesn't meet your agenda, then I guess there's there's a bit of a predicament here, isn't there? So um, this happens a lot, you know, and I think it, it's something that data people I think need to be keenly aware of. Is um, as you kind of pointed out the other time, it's you know uh, sometimes the data doesn't. Uh, confirm things and then executives might want to take a different approach. And so that's just kind of how it is. As I wrote about this last week in my uh, newsletter, um, what was it called? The politics of data. So then I walk with my uh, good friend, Aaron Hunsaker. I don't know if you know him in Salt Lake. He's a really good dude. Um, and he's, he's just mentioning it. It's, we're talking about just buying software, you know, buying systems. And it's like the, the decision's already been made. <laughs> like you can go through all these mechanics and stuff, but it's like at the end of the day, it's just, um, you know, so there's a lot of politics, right? And I think that that's, that's sort of, that, that does drive um, these sorts of answers, I think, that people 
end up using. This is not the same thing as the answers that the data team ends up providing, mind you. But you've been around the block enough to, to know that sometimes um, you know people have other reasons. So, I so Jacob Miller over at Pattern. So he's incredibly intelligent, great guy. And he put a napkin in front of me and he said, Hey, this is what I present to my stakeholders. And it's basically uh, a branch, a decision branch. If you look at a decision tree and it basically says, Hey, if you know, what, what do you think is going to, what, 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 what do you think the output's going to be? Like, what's the mm. answer that you anticipate? And he puts X where the answer is going to be. Right. And then he draws and says, if we do this project and we get Y, what's the probability that you would actually do Y instead of X? Or are you going to do X anyway? Okay. And I think this is a great visualization for every single person who's scoping is to understand that like your work and it's just like the big five, right? With like consulting, okay. they get paid a lot of money to validate things that people want them to validate in a deck. Right. And I think you're really wise in suggesting what you're suggesting, which is just, this is the reality of life folks. Like don't fight against it. And in fact, this may merit pushing it to a team or distributing across your team, these tasks that are just validation tasks, but it's really important to know what you're doing. If you go one direction and you think that you're actually going to influence this to Y instead of X, then you're going to be frustrated and your timeline at that company may be less and less. Whereas if you recognize that the answer needs to be X and that's what people want to validate and that's what it's used for. There's a moral, I think sometimes we fight this moral battle and I've actually paid the price for fighting the moral battle. And really, unfortunately, as a cost center, most time, most of the time data is a viewed as a cost center. Yep. The reality is you're just delivering whatever they want, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the reality of it. Yeah. I like the way you put it. Yeah, sometimes the reality is just um, delivering what people want. You know, uh, and again, this goes back to the uh, believable part of the, uh, you know, what Bill Inman said about believable data. It's, um, you know, so it's not, it may not be correct, but it's, it's what's believable. And, and then, so that, that's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I, I um, again, I just wish this stuff would be taught uh, sooner um, for people. It would probably save you a lot of headache. You probably, you know, it might, might save you a whole career uh, worth of mistakes, or it might just mean like you just switch careers because this is not, probably not a good fit for you. Um, you know, there's, you know, yeah. I've known nothing except this, this sort of industry and working in it. So it is what it is. Uh, but you know, well, let's talk about a veterinarian the, or something. I don't know. Yeah. You, I mean, <laughs> clearly you could do that. We, so the, <laughs> let's talk about AI and the complications that AI, mm. and then we'll shift over towards the end of this, like towards social media. I, I want to hit on that, but I think yeah, AI, there's a great danger of AI. And I'm not going to go into the whole end of the world thing. I think the greater danger is, again, the wrong data based on poor data quality and not having observability into that. I think this is kind of well discussed in various channels right now. But this is concerning because of default adopt mentality towards technology. Mm. That's what I think. I think a root cause here is that. But what do you do if, some, if a model's not observable, if you're, there's not transparency, there's not an understanding of what the output's going to be before you start putting it in and data quality is not being observed as well. How do you solve for this problem? Both the input is uncertain in terms of quality and the output's uncertain because of quality. What do you do? And clearly the answer I think is, well, you clean up the inputs, you build a process around data quality and the inputs, and then you observe 
the outputs, right? But I think that like, why have we not done this yet with analytics? I did a survey on companies and I asked, how much do you trust your data right now? And tech companies are saying 2.4 out of 10 is the average, right? Like it's horrible. And that's just on wow. analytics. That's not even AI. And so how does AI hurt this? How does that play into this? And what's the future of AI if people don't trust anything? I mean, you could take one thread and say that AI will solve the problem in ways that we can't. And I guess it's, it's always uh, possible that it, it could. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not going to dismiss that. But I've done enough machine learning to know that uh, inputs uh, sort of dictate your outputs uh, to some degree. There's obviously a level of uh, uh, stochastic uh, um, rigmarole, especially when you're dealing with deep learning, because it's literally how it works. Um, but, well, it's almost uh, machine learning works as well. <laughs> so um, it's not deterministic. It's the whole point of it, right? You have to build a model. Um, and so... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of these things where I guess if you don't trust the inputs, you don't trust the outputs. Um, you know, I guess you'll need to um, assess the impact, right? And so maybe you have a null hypothesis of what the impact's going to be, and, and, and you know, uh, then I guess you assess um, what the impact is actually going to what it does. And so that's, I guess, it's maybe the approach I would take. You know? um, because again, as long as the output's like somewhat believable, I guess maybe that's. And if you use ChatGPT, I mean, it does a pretty good job on a lot of stuff. I don't know, but would I use that for BI? I don't know. Here's the deal, too. If you give it the same data set, it'll still come up with different answers depending on what what happens. So, you know, I, I think you just need to uh, uh, kind of understand what you're dealing with, you know. Um, but, yeah, if we can't get BI right, I mean, throwing AI on top of that, I think is a recipe for disaster. But that's the road we're going down, whether we like it or not. So that's... You know, every company right now, I think, has some sort of mandate to figure out AI and implement it. And there's certain ways it would work, I think, for like customer service data, for example, right? Where you're, um, you know, or I saw one where it was like the, uh, was it Hardee's, Wall Street Journal, some lady went through the uh, Hardee's drive for like 30 different times because they have um, a new uh, um, automated bot there that takes your order. And she said 28 out of 30, it did a great job, actually, which I think is still better than half the time I go to a fast food drive through where they mess up my order like every single time. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, so I think it just depends on the use case too. I think for, for things like that, especially where I think you have unstructured data, I think that's actually where it has more potential, which has always been the case for machine learning. It does the, the structured unstructured data problems, I think are just, um, um, allow you to do things at scale, um, you know, and, and operate at a scale that you couldn't do with humans, like image recognition and, um, and so forth. And generative AI, you know, I think that it just uh, um, makes all the unstructured use cases way, way clearer. That's, I think that's why you see like, you know, ChatGPT doing really well in text because it's like, it, it just does. It does a phenomenal job. Uh, Midjourney does great on images, you know, and, and so forth. So I think that's, but when you start trying to apply this to structured data, I think this is where the predicament starts happening, right? I mean, but I saw this in machine learning um, several times over you know, over a decade now, so, you know, working on these types of problems. Um, I just think structured data, tabular data, it's very difficult to work with, right? There's there's not. Um, it's really hard to glean like a coherent set of patterns out of that. For for text, for example, right? When you, when you talk about like transformer models, um, there's there are ways that it works, I would say, in a, in a fairly standardized fashion. But with, with structured data, it's a lot different because um, every column is different. Every column is 
its own adventure. And so it's just fundamentally a different type of problem to solve. But I think we're trying to, you know, use this blood instrument and say, well, obviously it'll work on, you know, your, um, you know, transactional database, your data warehouse, just the same. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Uh, but you know, again, trying to do that with human aided stuff like BI still having a hard time doing that. So I think back to your point. Yeah. Reigns to be seen. I, I'm curious, what is the relationship between when you put a lot of energy? So let's say labor input or whatever into a structured data set, there is an expected level of quality or yeah. right. And now with unstructured, there's no level of effort potentially, right? There's some right for the infrastructure, but it's collecting a bunch of data. Is the, is this just basically a, look, there's an expectation of quality for structured versus unstructured. And we are very forgiving when it's a creative process, for example, with mid journey, like that takes a lot of time and effort. I haven't done anything to structured data. I'm just putting a sentence and now it's outputting an image. And I say, there's a, there's a relationship there of maybe that the quality is completely something that we're in awe about because we haven't done any effort. And yet at the supervised level or structured level, sorry, you have data that you have put effort in. There's an expectation of quality on the output. And therefore, psychologically, we say, oh, the output better have a, a more narrow band of, of error. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, images are an, an interesting example, right? Or video. So I was uh, talking to my friend, uh, 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 Will Rojas, he's over at uh, Coactive. Um, so they do a lot of um, unstructured data uh, stuff over there. Um, and he's he talking to me a bit about um, basically how do you structure a database to keep track of all the um, um, outputs of these models, right? So we got back to the notion of granularity and, and unstructured data, which is a very fascinating topic to think about. So what's, what's the, what, what is it that you're trying to detect at the end of the day, right? In an image, like what's the grain of the decision or, um, or the, uh, or the objects or object that you're trying to identify. Um, it's actually a really subtle problem, but I think a very important problem to talk about. Right. So he's been, so I think I'm trying to get him out to Utah to talk about this. Um, one of the meetups, it's, um, definitely one of the more forward looking conversations through respect to sort of bridging that gap between uh, unstructured and structured data, but structured data in itself, I think is just, um, you know, as I think about the, through the context of data modeling, right. It, it's just, you're, you're trying to capture reality, um, you know, and the, the business processes and rules in a way that you can, um, you know, store and retrieve in a database, right? But if you start at the conceptual level, that has nothing to do with the database. It's just simply understanding that the flow of information, it's a fundamentally different type of a problem than, than reading a, you know, a bunch of text, right? You're trying to, it's, it's, it's part process um, mapping and engineering when you're, do, when you're doing conceptual uh, data modeling as well. Um, you know, then, then if you uh, want to continue, you know, you can do logical and physical modeling. I think all too often what I see nowadays is people start at physical data modeling, though. They just say, well, because I have um, you know, a database, I can throw, you know, a ton of compute at it. What do I need to model anything for? I'll sort into one giant table and that's that. And uh, I think it's it's an approach. I would say that it's it, you're, you're um, trading off efficiency for fidelity of your data. You don't really understand what's going on with it, I can guarantee you. Not, not as much as you would if you went through the, the you know, the exercise of understanding the flow of data and how it works and how it relates to your business. But yeah, know, I'd, I'd be like, in favor of doing it with the Indiana Jones effect of data. Like, mm, oh, what does that mean? The golden nugget. I mean, they're there for the, you know, for the uh, golden, you know, the crystal skull, which was 
you know, we all know how that landed, but I think that, you know, the, the, but there's, there's this, I'm in it for the discovery of something I don't know, right? Like how actionable is that anyway? Like, but there's something about, you know, I saw my, my wife showed me an app that I think is the most brilliant app that I've seen using image, uh, image detection and everything it's called, it's from Bricket. And what it does is you take a picture of a bunch of Legos that are randomly sitting on the ground. And it recognizes each of the different shapes in the, in the, in the Legos. And then it gives you 10 different things that you can build with the instructions. That's cool. Like, I think this demonstrates exactly, uh, I think, um, an objective function that's very, very scoped. It's well scoped. I have an objective. I have an action that I, that I have for this. I'm going to build an application that recognizes in that context. So the anticipation is somebody's not going to go take a selfie and then do this, right? Like there's, there's a context. And with that context, now there's like a data set that's built with instructions and with, you know, different blocks. It's a brilliant demonstration of this point. Oh, that's genius. That's cool. I saw something similar to the Rubik's Cube. Um, you can take, take a uh, picture of a Rubik's Cube and it would give you a, a way to solve it. Uh, not that I suggest people do it. You should try and solve it yourself. But, <laughs> uh, you know, um, but that's that's really cool. And again, that's I think these are unstructured data problems, though, right? And I think this is like the power of, um, you know, um, just these technologies. And that's what I'm pretty excited about, you know. But I, again, I think that the problems that you run into with structured data, I don't know. I mean, we've been talking about that stuff for decades, and it's I don't think we're still any closer to the solution. I, I think a lot of cases the solution isn't technical, um, at least not yet. Obviously, you can maybe train an AI to do this stuff at some point. I think I fully expect that's going to happen, but. I was talking again with somebody about this today. I really feel like the, the biggest gap we have in the industry right now, the data industry that is, is it's just knowledge and, and practices. Um, you know, we're, we're really good at using tools. I think we're really boneheaded in the way that we go about um, using the ingredients, i.e. data, right? This isn't the same as a tool. Uh, tools are just a data warehouse or something. That's just a mechanism, right? Um, but again, that's not the same thing as understanding uh, the craft, understanding, um, you know, but I, I, to make a comparison, it's like being a chef, having a great oven, having great um, knives and so forth and, and whatever else. Uh, but you don't, you don't know how to mix ingredients together. You don't understand ingredients. Like what's a, what's a flavor profile, right? You don't understand any of that stuff. You just throw things together, put it in a, your, you know, your very nice oven and, and then that's that, right? And I feel like that's a lot of data practices these days. Um, we're, we're super good at the tools. Um, we, we suck at actually doing our job. Isn't this manifest in your experience when a big company, and I've seen this in various companies, not just, you know, big, but small too, that mm -hmm. the, uh, the solution to this is just switching tools. They kind of oh, yeah, believe that, oh, my BI tools, not the right tools. So I'll switch over to Looker or I'll look <laughs> over, you know, and you're yeah. like, that's the that's the biggest farce. Like there's not any type of reality to that. It's the people, it's the process, it's the framework, right? Mm -hmm. It is, but you only get to this point of being curmudgeonly and talking about these things after you've been slapped in the face a number of times too. And I think, uh, it takes a long time, I think, to develop this, uh, you know, this, um, uh, sense of, <laughs> I don't know, jadedness to, to, to some degree um, about things, but, uh, you know, because the tool is the easy part and every vendor in the world is going to obviously tell you that their tool is the only way to, to solve a problem. And if you're not using it, you're basically human garbage and, and so forth. I've had vendors say that too. I've had vendors tell me like, if you don't choose our tool, like you should be fired. Uh, you know, the client shouldn't have you. To which point I just sort of threw over my, my middle finger and told them, you know, 
kind of what I thought about that idea. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's just the attitude, right? And so it's, we live in a very uh, tool-centric world. And again, tools are great. They accentuate, um, you know, and amplify, um, you know, great practices. I think they also amplify really horrible practices. So, you know, it's, um, and when we talk about garbage in and garbage out with, with data, right. And, and quality and so forth. But I, I really think that if you look at the underlying reasons for a lot of this stuff, it is a lack of knowledge and practices, right. It's plain and simple, you know, whether it's a person, you know, entering the data or whether it's, you know, the person who set up a device that's a, you know, a sensor that gathers all the data. I mean, it's, you do what's in front of you, but, but it's hard to understand the, the um, second, third order consequences of that, right? But I think that's the level of thinking that we got to get to as well as just understanding basic data modeling practices. Again, that's kind of the thing I've been harping on, but that's one that's one thing out of like many things I think that are, you know, um, from a practice standpoint that we could definitely improve on. So I, I, I think that, you know, we live in, it's ironic that we live in an age of like endless amounts of data tools and technology and, and approaches, and we still have a hard time getting the basics right. I, I believe that if people focused on the frameworks and these points that you're making, then the tool should always be the next thing. It's, it's, it's downstream. The tool, if you're not fast in using tools or learning tools these days, then you're pretty relevant anyway. So, but don't focus on being an expert in the tool, focus on the framework. And yes, like there's expertise, right? Like uh, clearly there is value to somebody that knows a tool very well. But if you run, want to really drive change and strategy, and maybe that's a better way to put it, is like, if yeah. you want to be the order taker, learn the tool, there's going to be a place mm -hmm. for that, clearly. And if you're happy there, you should do it. I'm, I'm not here to be the moral police of like what you should or shouldn't <laughs> do. But I will say that I have seen this progression. I don't know if you've seen it too, Joe, but you know, as an analyst, uh, you know, somebody who's maybe an analytics professional, they start out, they start making all of this stuff, they get embedded in the data, they have strong opinions. And over time, you want to see those decisions made from your recommendations. And the less that happens, the more frustrated you get with the field. I see this happen 99% of the time for an analyst's life. And so the question then becomes, well, how do you become the decision maker, which is often not the case for analytics professionals, because it's not its own function. Like it's not a, like it's a, it's a, it's a cost center function, right? It's not a business decision function. It's not ops. It's not right. You're, you're hiring for your team. And I think this is what's challenging. Bridging that gap strategically requires the ability to then be assigned to own a product that's customer facing or yeah. right. And, and so there's a lot of professionals that struggle to make that jump because they're stuck in this world of they're, they're experts. They're not looking outside the box and saying, let me own this recommendation. Mm -hmm. Let me own this business decision and let me drive this product and be the product owner because it's just not, you know, the progression of the career. Do you agree with that? I, I think I've, I've seen that a lot. I mean, I was lucky enough early in my career to have somebody who, um, you know, took a shot on me and, um, you know, it's my, my first job. I was working at a company and, um, very, in very short order, I'd say within about a month or two, I was sitting outside the CEO's office and he, you know, I was giving him all the data he needed and, and started becoming, you know, offering advice too, and, and to the point where, you know, is um, directly uh, responsible for outcomes in the business, uh, you know, so I say it's a very rare opportunity, but I learned early on, uh, you know, sort of tying the data back to business outcomes, um, you know, very harshly, uh, um, I don't want to say harshly, but very, um, 
I would say very concretely, right? So, so yeah, I, I think it's part part of it is just I think it's the marketing of of data teams too, though, right? So I, I and frankly, I'm not sure the function of a lot of data teams these days. I'm sure they do some things, but it's like a lot of companies. I feel like it, it you know, back when I got started in this, this stuff, it was like there wasn't really a data profession, so to speak, right? Like you were more embedded with certain functions, at least my, in my experience, I'm sure others, you know, will disagree or have different experiences. And that's totally fine. Um, but in my experience, it was definitely data was a, sort of a secondary concern. It was more, okay, so you're going to help with sales and marketing. Um, you know, we need to have certain outcomes here for marketing. We need to make more money uh, and, and drive sales pretty clear, uh, you know, based on the amount of spend we're doing. So make it work. Right. So that's, that's, um, I think very concrete actions, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's, I feel like we're definitely kind of sort of at a, um, an interesting spot right now with, uh, data teams, right. Cause I know a lot of them are under evaluation right now and, and sort of the, um, you know, being assessed by, you know, uh, purse ring holders, uh, you know, so, so hopefully, hopefully a lot of this changes. I feel like the last 10 years, the 2010s, I think in no small part due to the, um, you know, the excitement around data science really, um, you know, put data at the center of everything. And I think that that's fine. We do live in a data, um, you know, first world these days, but I, but I, I think that the way we integrate data and, and people, um, that needs probably a second look. We could do, be, uh, do a better job with it for sure. So. Well, I, we only have like five minutes left. And so <laughs> let's talk about the social media side. Cause I think it'd be sad if we yeah. didn't, what's driving that interest and what specifically is on your mind there? I mean, you got kids, right? I do. Yeah, I do too. You know, and I feel like it's it's interesting. I mean, I hate to sound like an old fart. Um, you know, I grew up in the '80s, which is a lot of fun. You probably did too. Uh, it's a great time. You know, so I mean, my childhood resembled very much like the uh, scene for, uh, the, the Stranger Things show. Um, <laughs> you know, minus uh, fighting demogorgons and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but you know, as I, as I look at my kids today, and I look at their friends, and and you know, and whatever, it's like. You have everything at your disposal now. All the media, you know, it's all there. Any game you want is all there. And and the universal posture I see around the world is is this. It's somebody hunched over on their phone. Right? Um, Lord knows I do that as well. Um, but what I see happening right now w with kids, um, yeah, and adults, but kids are what I'm focused on because I feel like adults are kind of a lost cause. Um, <laughs> we're just, we're too old. You know, nothing you can do about it. So... Uh, but for kids, I feel like there's, there's a good opportunity to, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe give, maybe give them something new, you know, and by new, I mean, get them out of the house, you know, take them on hikes, uh, get, get them experiences, um, that don't involve just chatting with your friends all day. You know, I think that it, we're, it, I mean, as I look at my, my kids and, and their friends, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned, you know, I feel like they're, um, you know, mental health is a really big thing. You know, kids, I think are, you know, they're. Um, attaching their self-confidence to, um, you know, I think some of the wrong things, you know, uh, social media or, um, you know, those kind of stuff. So it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately, you know, and especially with the rise of AI, it's like, how do you prepare kids for what's probably going to be a much different world than the one that we grew up in? You know, I'm not saying go back to the eighties, but what I'm saying is like, you know, what's, what's not going to change in the face of AI. I think that the types of jobs that we're suggesting kids go to and the way we teach kids, I think does need to change. Um, you know, you're fundamentally seeing a, a huge shift already, uh, with how kids are integrating AI into their lives with respect to education, you know, and, um, 
and the impacts of social media again, I think is, um, these are all kind of the, you know, the, the parts of the same thread. And so just it's something I've been thinking about a lot, like how, how, how do you, how do you, um, you know, inspire, uh, this generation of kids and then, and, and younger to, um, you know, to, to be the best versions of themselves in the face of a, you know, again, a very rapidly changing world. So something that's been on my mind a lot. I don't have I, an answer for it yet. I, I, I appreciate your answer. Like deliberate parenting is hard. I found that to be true with the 10 year old yeah. twin, eight year olds and a three year old. That's it's challenging. Is that the ages and, of your kids? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's challenging and it pushes you. It pushes the boundaries. It's the most rewarding thing that I've ever done, but it's also mm-hmm. one of the, it, it is the most challenging thing that's that I've so ever hard. done. And <laughs> there is a concern that I have for default adopt that I've talked a lot about this recently, mm-hmm. which is if you look at technology, we're default adopt. We, justify social media. And I think there's a lot of parents that wish that their children had never been on social media. And there's probably lots of stories around this across the world. And that was default adopt. There was a default adopt on this is, I need to have my child on this because they're going to be weird if they're not. There's a lot of people that talk about this and that is not a good objective function in anything in, in your life. You, you'd like what should be deliberate. And I think that this is one of the things that I worry about most with my kids. How do you ensure that their decision-making improves because of AI? Right. This is a big big concern to me, not the automation, the automation. I'm not concerned about as much that look, if you have a lawnmower that's automated, that's doing the the grass. Fantastic. That's great. I can find other tasks for my kids to build character. But the bigger question is, is if I'm now assuming that the same thing applies to decision-making, I'm wrong. Decision-making is a new paradigm. We haven't had any technology that's automated away decision-making. And an example of this is, of course, the car. You've heard me talk about this, but you take away the skills of decision-making for driving a car from a kid. There's an effect on that, and there's not an easy replacement for that type of skill building. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. I I feel like we're definitely at an interesting point where... um, we're going to be outsourcing more and more of our critical thinking. Um, but if you, if you lack the context or you lack the critical thinking skills to begin with, that, that ain't great. Right. And I think that's sort of the central concern that I have. Um, you know, I mean, I, I see this with adults even right now, you know, on LinkedIn, I see people posting things, which I'm very much convinced are written by chat GPT. And I'm like, this doesn't seem like your writing or your voice. Uh, but for kids who don't know any better, it's just going to be sort of the, you know, the default, as you say. And, um, in some contexts, that's fine, but you need to understand that, well, is the output correct or not, right? And that's the decision-making, this critical thinking. And we, so I do this with my kids right now with math story problems. I'm like, put it in chat GPT, see what it comes out with. You know, I don't care. We're going to be doing it anyway, right? But then let's go through the answer. Half the time it's wrong. And I'm like, so pick, find out where it's wrong. So what I'm trying to teach my kids is just how to become better BS detectors, right? But, you know, they're, they're, they're lucky to have a dad like me who kind of knows this stuff. Um, but I, you know, a lot of parents don't. So that's the thing I've been thinking about is, you know, for the parents that don't like how, how do you teach critical thinking to kids? You know, I feel like the, the entire way that we've been teaching, uh, kids in school, it's been suddenly completely inverted (laughs) to a large extent. Um, where, you know, we, instead of writing essays, I think we need to, um, have different ways of, of, um, you know, assessing what an essay was supposed to assess and same with uh, the way we teach math and, everything else. I mean, so it's, it's like you're, you're given the answers, but you need to understand if the answers are right or not. And I think that's, that's the skill you're going to have to 
figure out um, because the larger problem is, and the thing that I'm more concerned about is that, you know, the um, proliferation of AI generated content is going to mean just absolute crap in the universe to the point where you, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, um, you know, the old, uh, the, the Iliad where you, you decide not look at the, the sirens calling you to crash on the rocks. And uh, I feel like the internet's about to become just like that, where there's going to be so much garbage. Like how, how do you know what's right or wrong? Right. It's it's impossible. Like with publications now, major publications, they don't retract. Right. There's not right. really that much retraction. So like this is even manually impossible right now where let's say the major publication, you know, one of the major ones, they don't retract. Well, is it right or wrong? Like you have now like Correct. created a really big problem manually. AI is oh, yeah. not going to improve upon that, right? Like, well, it'll just make it worse. Actually, yeah, it's, I mean, it's I, propagating. I, my dad, my dad said back in the day, like he could, he's convinced there'll be a point when people uh, will actually opt to leave the internet. Um, more and more, I'm actually starting to believe that he could be correct. I, I've been thinking about this at some point. It's like if it becomes too much of a hall of mirrors, I'd rather just sit with a regular book and just read. I mean, Lord knows I have enough of them I can read through. Um, you know, most of the news doesn't matter to you that you read. Why does it matter to you? You don't need to know what happens. Um, it doesn't affect you. So, you know, so I, I think there's this, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't have an answer for this. I don't think anyone does, but it, we're, we're definitely at a very interesting, um, again, inflection point uh, with, with knowledge. And I think, you know, you're, you're into decision-making, right? I, I am too. And it's, I think it's going to be about getting back to basics, um, you know, and, and but it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. So temptation is to outsource everything. Um, and so, you know, but it's, uh, I feel like AI is sort of the high fructose corn syrup of, of uh, you know, of um, society. I love that. I love that term. Joe, this has been great. Thanks. Thanks for being so gracious with your time. Um, clearly, um, anybody that, uh, needs to follow Joe, follow him. Um, I'm excited about this course that you're putting out. Um, excited about learning more about frameworks, the fundamentals of these frameworks of how to scope, how to build requirements, all of that. But, uh, Joe, thank you so much. Anytime, Carlos. It's good to see you, man. Thank you for joining us on the AI Decision Guy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes as we continue to explore the ever-evolving landscape of AI and its impact on decision-making. Until next time.